Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. Good morning. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is kind of a mystery on this 30th day of September for our 152nd broadcast. What have you got for us, Mr. William Morgan? Well, everyone, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Bill Surreal, or shall I say Dr. Surreal. Uh, William Surreal. No, not a doctor. Oh, not a doctor. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a joke there. I don't know if you remember the Duck's Breath Mystery Theater. They used to have a character on called uh, uh, Dr. Science, and uh, he would say, I'm not really a doctor. I have a master's degree in science. So that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Cyril was a friend and occasional house guest of Philip K. Dick from 1968 until Dick's death in 1982. He has also served as chairman of Argos Biologicals LTD, a small pharmacological R&D company, um, written film and music criticism for papers in Boston and San Francisco, uh, studied theo- theoretical physics at Boston University and taught classes on science and spirituality at Interface uh, in Boston, uh, the Open Center in in New York, and the Network of Light in Washington, D.C. Currently, he is the founder of the New Genesis Institute in Arlington, Massachusetts, an enterprise dedicated to regenerative medicine and life extension, where he leads Team Deco in competing for the Palo Alto Longevity Prize. His article on precognitive science information and the fiction of Philip K. Dick's collection will be featured as the cover story and the December issue of Edge Science Magazine. Welcome, sir. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Now, you. you know, you had the unique experience of actually connecting with what I suppose would be a science fiction hero of yours. Is this true? Was he a hero of yours before you reached out and contacted Philip K. Dick? Um, I probably wouldn't have contacted him if he hadn't been a hero of mine. <laughs> but it's it's not so much that he was a science fictional hero. I used to be friends with a number of other prominent authors. Uh, Isaac Asimov, who lived in my hometown, was one of them in particular. But there's something special about Phil Dick that called to me because it wasn't just that he was a science fiction writer. He was a writer and he he wrote brilliantly about the human condition. And what appealed to me about his work was the extent to which he could get inside the heads of ordinary people. I would read something like Martian Time Slip, the first few pages, just blew me away. Little details 
of what um, Sylvia Boland is having for breakfast, you know, toast with applesauce, things like that. He made, he uh, grafted a, a, a the, the mundane into science fiction in such a way because of his mainstream experience trying to write mainstream novels that really called to me and his descriptions of interpersonal relationships as challenging as they were for some readers because of his misogyny nevertheless struck a real chord in me. That's why I was fascinated by him, not just the brilliance of his ideas and his science fictional writing, but his uh, phenomenal grasp of, of the human condition. That's why he spoke to me, and that's why I eventually contacted him. Wow. I mean, when was it that you first discovered him? Do you remember the first book you ever read of his? Sure. There was a story of his called Colony that appeared in 1953 in Galaxy, which was basically just about the first year that he was writing science fiction, maybe the second. And I'd read that story. I was an 11-year-old kid, and I read it standing at, at the local newsstand, and it scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> I couldn't read anything of his again for a little while. But then later on during the 50s, I read um, two novels, two of the Ace uh, paperbacks in particular, The World That Jones Made, which impressed me for a number of reasons, and not, not the least of which was its uh, dark view of what it was like to be a precognitive, especially a precognitive who could see in detail the, uh, the condition of his own death and, and decay a year in advance. Um, that struck me, but also Eye in the Sky. I remember reading a review of it, I think it was in Time Magazine, and said, oh, I've got to read this book. And so those, I, uh, those are influences in the 50s. And then by the time the 60s rolled around and some real masterpieces like Time Out of Joint and especially Man in the High Castle came out. I was totally, totally uh, uh, engulfed in his writing style, in, in his worldview. I was uh, an enormous fan at that point. Uh, and I will say also that for me and for other people who were reading Phil in those early days, especially his Man in the High Castle, it was a huge uh, spiritual influence in a sense. I mean, it introduced a generation of us to the Yi Jing, to some basic concepts about Taoism and Zen. It was a door opener. And that also strongly appealed to me. So that was the initial introduction. What was it like meeting him for the first time? Well, it's pretty incredible. Uh, first, let me just say that um, I was able to reach him because I was a friend of the late science fiction editor, Terry Carr. And Terry knew of my interest in Phil Dick, and he basically said, look, Phil is just a totally approachable guy. He's like a fan <laughs> himself. You know, he's, he's well-known in the local community in Northern California. You could just write him a letter. So he gave me Phil's address. I wrote a three or four page letter of Phil's to Phil, and we began a kind of correspondence. What happened in 1968, uh, I had gone to a summer institute in theoretical physics at the University of Colorado at Boulder, saved up my money. In those days, there was abundance and 
National Science Foundation money to support uh, uh, summer institutes, and I decided afterwards that I was going to go visit California rather than go right back home. Uh, a fateful event that changed my life because I wound up living in the Bay Area for over a year, during which time I met Phil Dick and eventually became his house guest, lived with him for a month at that time and for later on in the 70s for another period. So I actually met him at BayCon, which was the World Science Fiction Convention that was held at the Hotel Claremont in Berkeley. Um, In right around Labor Day weekend of 1968. And there he was with his fourth wife, Nancy Hackett, and Phil was dressed in a brown wool suit, looking very much trying to look like a professional author and looking kind of uncomfortable in it. He rarely wore suits. and it, uh, It was about the only time I think I've ever seen him wear a suit. And we immediately hit it off, and he immediately invited me to come and stay with him, which led to uh, a couple of stays of um, two weeks each for a total of a month during um, during that period of the fall of 1968. And we stayed in touch afterwards, um, really up until the time he died. And the exegesis is littered with... You know, uh, correspondence between you and he, and how did your view on Phil change after his, in quotation marks, experience? Well, I wouldn't say it's littered with uh, correspondence. I mean, he does he does mention my name a few times because during the 70s, I was a frequent, and, or at least an occasional visitor to him and made some suggestions to him about uh, some of his ideas. Um, but um, I would say... What happened to him, his divine invasion, if you want to call it that, the kind of breakdown of his consciousness mm-hmm. and, and the reformation of something, something new, of, of uh, this new world vision that came in, um, it was really latent. You can really see it. It's latent in all of his books. It's just that when he had his, his mystical experiences, this, this breakdown, it brought it all together. And I saw him, I visited him six months after the events of uh, February and March of 1974. So it was in in August of uh, 1974 that I visited him. And he was rather guarded in talking about these events at that time. He um, really didn't share that many details. It was only later that I began hearing a lot more. Uh, and when I did, of course, I was fascinated. We had um, uh, previously, um, while I was living with him in 1968, I had we had had some extended discussions, uh, late night bull sessions, <laughs> that ultimately led to uh, the novel uh, *A Maze of Death*, for which I claim very little credit. He was the uh, instigator. I would say a knowledgeable sounding board, and the two of us are just having fun, is basically. Uh, although it's uh, not what I would call, the average person might not think it's fun to sit around inventing a new theology, 
<laughs> that's, that's what we did. But then, um, later on, in, uh, in the early 70s, when I began getting some sense of what had gone on for him, I was, um, I was really moved. I, was, I would say I was deeply touched by his experience. I didn't have my own sense of uh, uh, spiritual awakening, if you want to call it that, spiritual emergence, until um, shortly before his death. So I didn't really have a perspective for evaluating it. All I knew is that this guy was brilliant and that I heard him grappling, I witnessed him grappling with what had happened to him and with a a phenomenal mind that was trying to make sense using all the tools at his disposal of philosophy, of theology, ultimately even physics, to comprehend the what had been revealed to him, what had been coming through. I also have to say that I witnessed uh, at least either directly or indirectly some of the results of uh, of his uh, of these activities that prompted um, events in his life that are recounted in in his novel Vallis, for example, you know at various points during uh, during the 70s, I had, uh, I mean, and I had once, for example, uh, encouraged my girlfriend at that time to go visit him, um, forgetting about the fact that he had a, an insatiable appetite for for attractive, dark-haired woman, women, and <laughs> dark-haired and, and stunningly gorgeous, drop-dead gorgeous, so he he immediately started pulling some moves on her. Now, what he, later t- what he later told me is that as a result of that, Tessa had decided to leave him. And oh. that was what prompted his suicide attempt, which is recounted in Vallis, where he wound up in the rubber room. Right. But with Phil, you know, the thing about Phil is that he lived in... Uh, sort of a multi-dimensional space in which (laughs) you never knew what was true and what wasn't. I mean, Tessa would just frankly say uh, he just made stuff up. He lied all the time. But um, clearly not about everything. There there are many things that uh, he said that can or have been validated. But uh, it's unclear what the story was exactly with... uh, with my girlfriend, I can't claim credit to prompting indirect, indirectly to prompting uh, Tessa's leaving him or to a suicide attempt. I just thought it was interesting to hear about what had happened and then to read it later on, a few years later, in Vallis and say, oh, that's what was going on at that time. We just spent the past month looking at Vallis, both as as uh, literature and also mm-hmm. as as uh, the kernel of the truth in his life, the thing that he really needed yeah. to get out. What is, yeah. ha, what is your experience of Vallis as both you know literature and then as something that you actually were part of? Well, I would simply say that when I read it, I thought it was the best thing he'd ever done. And I mm-hmm. really, we're talking about the first half or first two thirds of it. It does sort of run down towards the end. Uh, but um, the the splitting of himself 
into two characters, you know, as Philip K. Dick and as horse lover fat, uh, just phenomenal, brilliant. Recognizing, you know, characters that I'd met, like Jeter, um, seeing, you know, he, recognizing incidents that I had heard of, that I had uh, been aware he'd gone through, and just seeing it recorded there. It is like some of the best fiction. It's inherently autobiographical, but because of that, um, because and because he was an extraordinary writer, and because an extraordinary series of events happened to him. I found at least the, the, a good chunk of Vallis to be the most compelling thing he'd ever written, and hair-raising. I mean, the, uh, the extracts um, that later appeared in more detail in, in the exegesis, for example, his, his philosophical bits, you know, the Tractatus Scripturae, Cryptica, and all that, um, what appeared in the novel was of course, pruned down from the vast quantity of material that you'll find, you know, 8,000 pages of handwritten notes in the exegesis, and it's kind of a distillation of some basic concepts. But it was a brilliant distillation. It was, um, it, it complemented the, um, the fiction, or the story, I should say. It wasn't just fiction. It complemented the story by paralleling his this sort of philosophical theological discourse with um, some really human uh, and moving events, and it's just another illustration of um, how comprehensive his worldview was, and how he could manage to pull off both and merge them together so convincingly. I thought that was stunning. You know, one of my favorite parts. Or one of my and, and I'd say probably my favorite book is Divine Invasion of his. And at the very at the very beginning of it, he, there's this passage where he talks about James Joyce and how Joyce predicted the television. In the same right. book, mm-hmm. later on, he basically predicts what we know as tablets. A little boy man, yeah. he's looking at a tablet and asking a question, and it comes back saying, you know, I am Valis. I mean, are the writings of Philip Dick or K. Dick coming true? Interesting question. Um, I mean, first of all, as I comment on the article that will be appearing in the December issue of Edge Science Magazine, um, science fiction writers are supposed to be prognosticators, I mean, because they deal with situations that could be um, and, and often leap off of current concepts to come up with new things. And he was not a hard science fiction writer, but he could certainly come up with new ideas that were based on uh, sociological phenomena, for example. I mean, there's so many details in so many of his books that one can regard as remarkably prescient. I'm thinking of the description in Time Out of Joint, for example, of teenagers of the future. Of course, this was written back in what, 1959, and talks about uh, teenagers who are dressed androgynously and with uh, uh, filed teeth. It sounds so much like the punk scene of today or even of 30 years ago, the uh, sort of um, uh, merger of uh, a a variety of cultural tropes in in a new way that somehow he got right on, at least in the spirit of it. If you read that passage again, you'll see what I mean. 
there are little details like the um, what is it? It's uh, I guess it's in Galactic Popular the the word game that sounds like the kind of uh, internet word games that people play these days. He didn't invent the internet, but um, it was, and I don't think anybody really foresaw the internet. So that's no liability on his part. But uh, a lot of what he talked about uh, becomes much more comprehensible or, or certainly accessible if we take into account and we take for granted that uh, something like the internet and you can see how that uh, those ideas would work. There are many other examples of um, just some delightful concepts of his. You know, the notion of the the electronic psychiatrist in the suitcase, Dr. Smile. I mean, we're virtually there. Actually, even back in the 60s, there was a computer at, at uh, MIT that could engage in uh, pre-programmed conversations with people and lead them into um, actual therapeutic moments simply by being a good listener and a good talker. So he was way ahead of the curve on so many details like that. Uh, and so, in a sense, yes, you know, as Tessa says, uh, Tessa Dick, his fifth ex-wife, uh, mm. says, uh, we're, you know, it's a Philip K. Dick world, and it is more and more so, which is why he is come at this point, 30 years after his death, to such a state of prominence because his ideas, and I include his spiritual ideas as well, are really have really become ripe. They match the zeitgeist. He was 30 years ahead of his time in in really predicting, or even longer in predicting the zeitgeist. I mean, in in um, in Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, where the electronic uh, psychiatrist occurs, there's also uh, global warming. You know, nobody was talking about global warming in the early 60s when he wrote the book. I mean, uh, he was just uh, amazing in that regard. So the biggest, probably one of the things that I would say um, really matches remarkably, even more so than at the time he wrote it, the kind of world, let's say, in um, Radio Free Album Youth of government surveillance, government mm-hmm. spying. Of course, it was all inspired by the the uh, the Nixon... Nixon's involvement in Watergate break-in and that kind of spying, but carried to an extreme that kind of matches what we have today with uh, the National Security Agency surveying uh, all the phone calls, all the data transmissions. Um, You could say he predicted it, but I think it's one could even go further. His natural paranoia and suspicion of excessive concentrated power, government power, um, is something that's that's really at the core of that. And that's why his ideas, in part, that's why his ideas are uh, important today, why, why his ideas resonate with us. And the last piece I will say about that is just his... Uh, his spiritual venturing, his spiritual explorations. I mean, there has been, since his death, there's been a, a huge um, 
movement, I will call it, although it's not an organized movement. It's what you might call the re-spiritualization of the planet, and it's been occurring in fairly subtle ways, but it's it's very real. And he is um, he's a pioneer. He's a, a He's an intrepid investigator of inner space, hmm. and that calls out to people who are who have their own sense of spiritual emergence or emergency. You know, Phil always spoke to the to the disaffected, to the alienated, um, because he was that way himself. But he was also, in his later years, he was a kind of a role model for dealing with spiritual emergence. And that's a phenomenon which is occurring to more and more people uh, on the planet. It strikes me that his writing is so concerned with the humanity of both characters and situations. I wonder how he would respond to our connected moment now where there's a concern that these technologies that he was predicting might actually be... Like draining our humanity. Hmm. I well, I think we'd have to um, specify a particular technology that would be draining us. I suppose the. I mean, he was always aware of um, alienation in Martian time slip, for example. He has uh, people uh, more ready to talk to uh, machines than to talk to humans, for example. Um, there is, he, he never predicted cell phones or anything of that sort, but there is a, a kind of alienation now where we're disconnected from contact with other humans because there are all these intermediary um, elements of technology that prevent preclude direct connection. It's so much easier to pretend to have an authentic communication with someone by checking off a like on Facebook rather than actually calling someone up and having a conversation. I think in that sense, you can say that his, uh, he was apprehensive about um, the uses to which technology might be put if it would ultimately increase separation and alienation. So I think there's something that could be made out of that. There's probably a master's thesis there somewhere for someone in a creative writing class. All right. Well, let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about yourself. Um, Well, I guess (laughs) it'll still have to do with Philip, but I would like to know how Philip K. Dick has actually affected your... um, your career. I mean, did he did he have an effect on you changing fields from physics to biochem- biochemistry about 30 years ago? It was, um, that change was in the works, so I, I guess <laughs> that in part came from a, a rejuvenation in my own life um, and ultimately from a spiritual experience. The extent that Phil Dick was an inspiration you could say that was prompted as well. Um, I was, you know, ultimately my goal was to help heal other people, and it's still that. And that's something that Phil would understand. The healing impulse 
because of his enormous empathy. So I'm not saying that he was a direct influence on my switching fields. I'm just saying it was the right time for me to switch fields while retaining a focus um, on, on helping other people. And uh, one of the things that I resonated most with about Philip K. Dick was his tremendous humanity and his, uh, his empathy for anyone who would be downtrodden. I mean, the moment he had money, he was giving it away. Mm. That's the kind of person he was. And he, uh, he had flaws like all of us, but he was also, and he could be very irascible at times, but I, could, I really saw a very kind, warm, and generous individual who just happened to be one of the most brilliant people on the planet. Mm-hmm. He, um, so in a sense, he was a, uh, a guide, perhaps even a mentor. Um, what I do know is that in 1977, he gave a rather well-known uh, speech at a science fiction convention in Metz, France. Um, the computer program speech. About, yes, he, he really predicted the Matrix 22 years before that film came out. Um, and uh, the year later, when I was visiting him, he gave me the original manuscript of that speech. You know, the world knows about that speech, it's the, if you think this uh, world is bad, you should see some of the others, is the title of it, only because I made a copy of it and gave a, and gave a copy to Paul Williams, the executor of the Dick Estate at that time, and then it was ultimately published. But that, <clears throat> of, all the, of all his essays, that is the one that had the most influence on me, because it talks about not just how our reality is is virtual, um, but how it's actually being changed and reprogrammed right around us. And uh, that very much appealed to me because from my earliest exposure to physics, I had always been intrigued and fascinated by the, uh, the multiple worlds hypothesis. Phil didn't invent alternate reality stories. He just simply wrote some of the best ones that were. That was a trope he really... <laughs> fully inhabited, and I'm grateful for it. But this is an amazing document, this speech he gave, because um, it was a huge influence on me spiritually and other ways. I really do believe that our reality is malleable and that we can, in particular, you know, one <laughs> minor aspect of this is that um, we can change our reality through the power of our intention. I've seen that happen an awful lot. And in a sense, that's the most important thing I got from him, more even than um, than any direct impulses around physics and biochemistry. I will also say that um, I was astonished. It was in 1986, which was about uh, four years after he died, after I had made this transition from physics to biochemistry, when I was sitting in a science library and happened to pick up a book on a, uh, an important substance that I'd never heard of before because I was a newbie in the field of biochemistry, still learning, and it had to do with mitochondrial energy, bioenergetics, 
you know, mitochondria are the fuel cells, that the engines that run mm-hmm. all of our cells. And it was about uh, the substance now known as CoQ10, coenzyme Q10, known as ubiquinone. And the moment I saw it and read about its properties, I nearly fell out of my chair because this was, it bore an uncanny resemblance to ubic. Mm. Wow. I developed a hypothesis, which I finally got around to writing up and will be published in the December issue of Edge Science, that describes the connections between ubic and ubiquinone. And that was inspirational because I felt that through his, let's say, his uh, mystical visions, his uh, extrasensory perceptions, he somehow downloaded a piece of information from the noosphere, from the realm of mind, from the mental plane, if you will, something that he could not, or would have been extraordinarily unlikely that he'd ever heard about. I mean, Ubiquinone had been named in 1957, well before Ubik was written. Ubik was written in 1966, but not actually published till 1969. And clearly the two of them are not identical. I mean, Ubik is something that is not only has anti-aging properties and restorative properties, it actually reverses the what we might call the regression of platonic forms, which is something Ubiquinone can't do. But to the extent that Ubik in the novel can have anti-aging effects, can help relieve fatigue and muscular weakness, and as well as a few other characteristics, those match very closely with what uh, ubiquinone supplementation can do in cases of uh, age-related fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome, myopathic deficiency of of, uh, coenzyme Q10 synthesis, things like that. Uh, And I I found this was remarkable and really inspirational. He was a guy who, all right, he had a smattering of knowledge about the sciences. He, he was somewhat well-versed in psychiatry as a layman. He had a, shall we say, a practical knowledge of psychopharmacology and drugs. Um, he had a smattering of knowledge about physics and occasionally asked me for input around that. But many of his intuitions were homegrown. And it's remarkable that he knew nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing about biochemistry to come up with accidentally, as it were, unconsciously, with these these, uh, co- these uh, coincidental correspondences is sort of mind-blowing to me. So I have to write an article about it. And, <laughs> um, you know, it's just, um, that is, you can call it prediction, you can call it precognition. There's ample evidence that he did have precognitive abilities. For example, um, Tony Peake's book, uh, his biography of Philip K. Dick, The Man Who Remembered the Future, is a wonderful compendium of information about Phil's uh, precognitive abilities. But this is something a little different because it's, he, if I'm right, he actually intuited scientific information, which he knew nothing whatsoever about. I kind of wish... I'd had a chance to tell him about that if he hadn't died four years too soon. For Well, there are a lot of reasons I wish he'd lived longer. So <laughs> it would have been amusing to share that one with him. Since we're 
starting to wind up here, I think it would do us justice to talk a little bit about life extension and on a personal level, what drew you to that and perhaps even what Team Deco is. Yeah, well, this is perfectly appropriate since we were just talking about uh, the anti-aging effects Absolutely. of, uh, of CoQ10. Yeah, by the way, I actually uh, synthesized some Ubik in a uh, in a pharmaceutical lab based on <laughs> clues I got from, from that book, and it did have some very interesting properties um, that, uh, um, just briefly, it, uh, I and uh, friends lost uh, 10 pounds uh, that's a weight that stayed off just because it upregulated metabolism. But the most interesting uh-huh. effects was seeing women applying it to their faces and who were taking it orally and witnessing um, wrinkles disappearing in about three weeks. And more alarmingly, uh, postmenopausal women becoming premenopausal. Sounds pretty unbelievable. And uh, it, I never developed it further because I had some problems with it was unstable. And I could never guarantee what the results would be. It's kind of like in a Philip K. Dick novel. You never know what you're going to get. But uh, <laughs> I do intend to go back to that. But it did lead me on to some related subjects. And so I found a, um, I found another substance that is theoretically capable. In fact, I've got some very good evidence of it that it can help reverse uh, some of the effects of aging. As it turned out, when I went to... Uh, when I gave my talk about Ubik and filled its precognitive information about it, this past June, I went to the um, Society for Scientific Exploration meeting and delivered a talk. I made some connections there that uh, wound up resulting in my being invited to participate in a $1 million anti-aging prize sponsored by the Palo Alto longevity prize and um, it turned out what I had seemed to match what they were looking for exactly so I put together a team team deco of my of the new Genesis Institute um, specifically dedicated to doing the research on this project Um, we have some very good people working with us and if we to get the money we need to, we'll be off and running. Uh, the project will launch by uh, January 15th, if not sooner. And uh, I think this could, uh, this hopefully will be even more effective than my previous attempt to make Ubik. This is not Ubik, it's something unrelated to it, but it's, uh, it's a goal worth trying to achieve. Uh, and if there's time, I'll tell you why it's worth trying to achieve. Go ahead. It's it's not about just about life extension and anti-aging, although, of course, a lot of people would like to be younger and stay younger. Um, it's that the majority of fatal illnesses on Earth, aside of things like accidents, you know, trauma, and infections, just about everything else is age-related. The majority of adult cancers are age-related, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, even diabetes, stroke, hypertension, heart disease. Those are all age-related phenomena. Instead of trying to cure each of them individually, maybe we should be trying to cure aging because then these diseases would not show up. And that's what uh, Team DECO is trying to do. DECO 
refers to an old concept uh, by an endocrinologist uh, who discovered a pituitary hormone uh, the same year. In fact, he published it the same year that uh, Fildick had his uh, his uh, mystical experiences, 1974. No one ever identified exactly what this substance is. We've got a good candidate for it, and through understanding it, we believe we can retard the aging process. And that's what Team Deco is about. What would Philip K. Dick make of a population that doesn't age? <laughs> it's, um, first of all, actually, it's not even just Philip K. Dick. One of the major concerns on the planet right now is population density and diminishing resources as well as global warming being driven by uh, the consumption of large, uh, of, of not just fossil fuels, but uh, consumption of energy on a large scale, especially in underdeveloped countries that are just developing, India and China in particular. So there's, um, if one might think that having a greatly extended lifespan is going to only, is going to enormously increase pressure on population growth. But that turns out not to be true. The major contributor to population growth uh, is not people living longer. It's people having more and more children. Um, so I think that's really what we need to do is look at population control in order to advance the species. And of course, uh, I think Phil, I'm not sure he would feel one way or another about this, he would. Uh, he certainly. Um, he certainly contributed his share to expanding the population with three children by three different wives. But uh, I think because his overall impulse was towards human satisfaction, towards healing, um, I think he would have approved of the idea of a treatment that could keep people healthy for long term, not necessarily living forever, but just healthy. And of course, the irony is that he died at the age of 53 of a stroke, which is exactly the kind of age-related illness that I'm talking about. Right. So he would have been a great candidate for for this uh, the, the Deco product. And if he... It, it would have been great to have him around for another 30, 40, 50, or 70 years. One can only imagine what he might have been able to achieve. Well, that was 42 minutes. Yep. We appreciate you sharing it with us, sir. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Is there anything sure. else that you would like to tell our listeners on where they could find more information about yourself? Uh well, yeah, if you go to the, um, either look up the uh, YouTube video about me, it's a video interview condensed from 15 minutes to five minutes that was done by the Palo Alto Longevity Prize. You can look up my name, William Sirill, S-A-R-I-L-L, or you can go to the Palo Alto Prize, I think it's paloaltoprize.org um, website, and there's information about the other teams of researchers who are competing. You'll see photos also of other members of, uh, of my team, people from uh, uh, a variety of uh, local 
and uh, universities, uh, McGill, Brown, and some other schools. Um, and that, aside of that, is also my articles that have been published. Uh, there was an article called I Was a Friend of Philip K. Dick, which ran in a paper, a local Boston magazine, uh, the Boston Phoenix, which has since gone out of business, but you can find that interview online just by searching for it uh, under my name or under the name uh, I Was a Friend of Philip K. Dick, and you'll find out a little bit more about uh, all the things I've talked about and how we got around to uh, working on a maze of death. Well, thank you, sir. You've been listening to William Surreal on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. For more information about The SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much. And we're not just watching movies here, people. We're saving lives.